Everybody, welcome to Revved Up for Sunday. We are the clergy of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. I'm Peter Walsh. I'm Justin Chris. I'm Elizabeth Garnsey. For those of you who are followers of our podcast, we've got ourselves a new locale. We're up in the balcony, and it's a good thing because today we've got some lofty ideas to talk about. So here it is. This is John 16, verses 12 to 15. Jesus said to the disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, this is one of my favorite passages in John, mm-hmm. oddly enough. I mean, because there's a, there's a lot of things in John that I, I have to pick <laughs> apart, like a vulture. But this one, I, I really love this idea that Jesus had such a long horizon, you know, that I have many things to say, you cannot bear them now. To me, that is like the key to the future of the church and that none of us know when when that's going to run out, you know. And I I love the idea that there are always new things to learn and new insights to be gained, you know, in context of our own time and our own experience and our own ability to perceive and understand. So Mm. I'm so, so... Uh, grateful for this passage because I think without it we might stay locked in the doctrines of a certain time and place and not Hmm. be able to you know expand or or even rethink or redevise or reimagine so that's right I I just want to oh wow so I'm just going to say I did not expect anybody to say this was one of their favorite passages (laughs) yeah yeah, I just didn't see that one coming at all so right from the start I've been awakened uh, here so and then you've rolled out here this question of continuing revelation here yeah Uh, what is the nature of that and Justin has a PhD in theology if you don't know that folks so he can he can reflect a little bit on this Trinitarian Uh revelatory movement here I love the way you've begun us oh yeah I mean I I also I also actually really love this passage. I don't know that it's my favorite passage from the Gospel of John, but it is one of my favorites because I, I do love the idea that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. Um, and I think that this is actually one of the things that I, um, I think it's important for Trinity Sunday, right? Because the doctrine of the Trinity is not actually spelled out in the scriptures. It's not as though you get the, you know, the idea that the Father, the Son, and Spirit are co-equal in divinity, eternity, and so on. And that's like, you know, in Romans chapter 4 or something. It's not spelled out here. Instead, it was spelled out by Christians wrestling with what had happened. Uh, What had happened in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension, and so on. What had happened in history. And then also what was happening in the scriptures. So the doctrine of the Trinity, which... Um, to which this passage is really integral uh, in the history of its formulation. The doctrine of the Trinity is really the solution to a problem. And the problem, an intellectual problem of a kind and a spiritual problem of a kind. And the problem is that we have, um, Christianity emerges 
from a monotheistic religion, Judaism, but that the, what happens in Jesus's life is there's not just one divine character on the scene, there are three. There are three characters, as it were, on the stage of history. There's Jesus, and then there's the one he called Father, and then there's this spirit character whom he promises us in the farewell discourse of John, and who uh, lightens upon him uh, in his, at his baptism in all of the Gospels, and so on. Um, and the, the question is, what do, how do we make those two things fit together? Uh, the monotheism of the Jewish tradition in continuity with which Jesus' teaching uh, continues, um, but also honoring the credibility of, the, of what's happened in Jesus' own life, which is that you've got these three divine characters of some kind. And there are lots of attempts at solving this problem in the history of the early church. Some of them try to get rid of the paradox and make things easier. So an example of this would be Arianism. This bishop named Arius in the early church thought that the God who is incarnate in Jesus, the Word who was made flesh in Jesus, was a creature, was a creation, was the first creation, perhaps the most, um, the most glorious, the most perfect, uh, and perhaps even a creature who had been given the power of God. But God was really God the Father, the one whom Jesus called Father, not really the God who is in Jesus. And the early church was very, over time, became very worried about this because that was, you know, that would imply that, well, Jesus was kind, the God who was in Jesus was kind of God, but the really real God was God the Father. And so when we come into contact with Jesus, how do we know it's, how do we know this kind of God is actually an accurate representation of God? Um, how do we know that the God with whom we come into contact in Jesus is the real thing, the real enchilada, as it were, to use a theological term? Um, so that's just one example of the way that the early church was discerning in fits and starts with a lot of politics and even violence. Uh, there was, you know, a political intrigue and so on surrounding all of these decisions. The church was a human institution, right? The church was a human community, period. Uh, and so it involves all of the same confusion and madness which human communities still involves today. But the, 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 the message of Jesus in this passage from chapter 16 is that the spirit of truth is going to come and he will guide you into all truth. And I think that God worked through the madness and the confusion of those early years of the church to really give us a spiritual framework that has borne incredible fruit over 2,000 years. So this is why I'm not one of those people who believes the conspiracy theory-ish. I'd say it's kind of a conspiracy theory that like the, uh, the orthodox teaching of the early church is somehow polluted by imperial power and so on. And that really what we want to do is we want to get behind the orthodoxy of the early church and we want to attend to some of these heresies. Maybe the heretics were really the good guys. And so this is like the reverse of history being written by the winners. Now I think we're tempted by history written by the losers. Um, I think the Spirit has led the church into all truth, and that the proof of that, the proof of the usefulness of this way of thinking about God, 
this triune way of thinking about God, that you all three of these characters are fully God. They're really different from one another in some mysterious way that we might discuss, but they're all really genuinely God. And when we come into contact with them, they're actually God. They're the one God. There's no God hiding behind them. Um, that this fruit's been borne out in the works of brilliant, brilliant, brilliant spiritual people, saints and doctors and, uh, you know, everybody from, everybody from Thomas Aquinas to Teresa of Avila to Julian of Norwich to, uh, you know, to, to Dorothy Day to uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, all of these people working within this, this spiritual framework bequeathed to us from an era of incredible confusion, conflict, argument, even violence. That to me is just part of, that, that's part of this passage coming true, actually, is that the Spirit actually did, after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, lead the church into, into truth. And I believe that the Spirit, as Elizabeth said, is leading the church into more truth, too. Yeah, wow. Uh, so just for everybody here, I mean, you've started us off into the question of continuing revelation, and you've given us a little bit of the how did how did the Trinitarian uh, uh, doctrine grow out of the, the the drama and trauma of the early church as they were trying to make sense out of these uh, the triune what we would call the triune nature of God, mm -hmm. and and now we have again on this Trinity Sunday looking back at the passage. I'm just going to say this is not one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, and I've uh, uh, preached around it uh, in, in many times in my life, uh, talking uh, in metaphors about metaphors, right? Talking about the Trinity is a, is a metaphorical way in some sense, a, a way of speaking about about the, the, the mystery of God, and then we use different ways to describe this mystery of God. We were talking a little bit earlier before we went on tape here about uh, St. Patrick and his evangelizing of the, uh, of the Irish people. So, uh, I, you know, for me, I think that one of the interesting um, questions here uh, is that, that, and I have step back that the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, is, uh, is an active power uh, is God's action in the world. And so we don't just have a transcendent God where we have received the revelation in toto in such a way that we are not to contend with it, that there is an, an active, a little bit of what you're talking about, a flowing element in, in the uh, continuing revelation of, of what, is, what is the divine, what is divinity, and how might we make our way there. And that the active power of the Spirit um, is not just an intellectual ascent to some kind of, I vaguely understand how, how the, something can be three and one and one and three, but really um, the, the purpose of our theology is not to dumb us down, it's to kind of help us live up and into mm -hmm. uh, a sense of the actual being of God, which, uh, you know, personally, I think that Origen was on or speaking of early church fathers, about the being of God, what happens after our death, that, you know, that whole idea that we will spend an eternity up in pursuit of an infinite God that we will never come to know fully, but uh, we will know that we are fully known, and in the process, we will be in a, in a free fall of love, uh, of revelatory love, as we begin to understand that which we only see in the mirror dimly now, to, to kind of quote Paul here. But that with all of that stuff, <laughs> divine stuff. 
we have things like what you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, God's action in our lives that fits within a form and a content, right? We have a form and a content of the faith. We do. We do, but it has a kind of fluidity within the within the, 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 the infrastructure of the faith. And I think that's what you were referring to, that we had historically made the revelation has continued. And I know you have such a heart for that revelation, continuing to continue, particularly in the, in the bringing of all humanity uh, to a, a level playing ground with our Lord. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think that uh, the doctrine is, is helpful framework that that mm. was given to the church you know through experience and through many many minds and and years of contemplation and discernment and then getting it down on a page and into a creed and um into the church to to teach and pass down and it's sort of like a house you know the house is built and mm. sometimes people admire the house but they don't actually move into it oh that's good you know that's good or and uh, and sometimes the house starts to break down, you know, I don't think it's always completely helpful to stay too tight into a doctrine, um, especially this one. And the reason I like this passage for this Sunday is because, as you said, it's the only feast day we dedicate to a doctrine and not to a person. Um, this idea that, you know, there are many things still to learn that, that Jesus still has to tell us, but we can't bear them now, including how to understand this, this experience of the Trinity. And um, it's very much been, you know, the substantive theology where, you know, you need the substance of the Father and the substance of the Son, the substance of the Holy Spirit. And it's becoming, I think, the one way the church is being guided into more truth is that it's much more experiential than that. It's much more relational than that. It's much more fluid and loose and not, you know, tripartite kind of thing. I mean, it is, but... Good. more in our ability to perceive, you know? Yeah. And mm. I think one of the most helpful um, writings about the Trinity that I've come across is from um, um, uh, James Allison. Sorry, mm. it took me a minute to get my finger on his name. Um, James Allison, who talks about the, the Trinity as, um, you know, a way of letting humans come to a, a corrected understanding of mm. who God is. Mm. And he wrote this beautiful book called The Joy of Being Wrong. <laughs> and in it, he talks oh, about uh, how God, mm. you know, the love God has for humanity is, is, um, has always been that way. God has always and always immutably been love. Mm. And humans have ascribed to God all kinds of violence, all kinds of judgment, all kinds of condemnation and wrath and there's that whole story we have in the Bible of, of humans interacting with a violent, wrathful God who's judging today, blessing tomorrow, mm -hmm. judging again today. You know, this ambivalent kind of capricious yeah. God. And so the idea that God would send, you know, become human and come into the world and place God self as a human victim of our own violence, it, mm -hmm. it's sort of a way of showing us that it's it's all been a human violence all along and that this violence doesn't come from god and um so in a way that the trinity can be offered as a correction of our perception of god and so it doesn't stop there god enters the world this is still james allison um and then goes all the way to becoming an actual victim of our violence mm -hmm. 
And on the cross, Jesus, you know, gives his spirit over to God, capital S, you know, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And Mm. in the resurrection, God gives the spirit back to the son. And Jesus and God can give that that same spirit to to all humanity, to the church in the ascension and and in in the act of the Pentecost. And so that we can enter, you know, be given this new way of becoming uh, human, which is to become children of God. And I love that idea of the Trinity, that it's, you know, more of a relational reality that um, it helps. And, and once we enter into that, you know, it's, it's ours for the taking. And once you really move into that house of the Holy Spirit, you can begin to like really see the, the connection between a love, the loving God, the all ever loving God of all things everywhere and become part of that and take part in it and speak that language and act that way and, you know, be willing to be in the place of the victim and, and be willing to see that God loves the world that much. Mm. And, you know, that's the flow. And when we're in the flow, that's our way too. You know, that's who we are. So I like that notion that, that our doctrine has set us to understand um, the, the, the relational aspect, but we have to move in and actually experience it. And I thought that was just a really helpful um, way of expressing it that, that James Allison did. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. James Allison is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally amazing. Uh, that's, um, I'm really taken, Elizabeth, with your, um, with your idea that doctrine is the house, but the whole point is you have to move in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just thinking what a shame it is that our... Um, what a shame it is that doctrine has become something that we would even need to say that about it, right? And I have some opinions about when and how that happens, right? And I actually think it's relatively modern that it has something to do with the way that theology began to be taught in the modern university, particularly as it emerged out of Germany. Uh, I don't mean to blame everything on Schleiermacher. I love Schleiermacher, but Schleiermacher is in some, is in some ways... Um, is in some ways to, to blame for this, that um, the idea that doctrine could be a mind game, that it was primarily an intellectual enterprise and not an enterprise of what the, what pre-modern Christians would call contemplation, right? And not just to contemplate like, you know, oh, I'm going to contemplate, you know, two plus two equals four, but contemplate as in like a spiritual adventure in which I'm going to come into contact with the true, the good, and the beautiful in and of itself. And in the Christian telling of the story of the true, the good, and the beautiful, the true, the good, and the beautiful leads you to this a God who is crucified, right? This, uh, uh, the, the beautiful ends up being the, um, uh, the, 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 the ugliness, the formlessness of the cross. Uh, and so it's this, um, uh, this really bizarre and counterintuitive way of knowing the true, the good, and the beautiful, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful as revealed to us in Jesus. But the idea that uh, the idea that doctrine would be just a mind game, I think, is relatively recent. It's not the way that the early church would have thought about this at all. Um, one of my favorite Trinitarian theologians from the patristic period or the era of the early church fathers and mothers is, um, 
Gregory of Nazianzus, the fourth century Archbishop of Constantinople, and um, sometimes called Gregory the Theologian. Uh, my teacher Miroslav thinks it's really funny that we all go around calling ourselves theologians. He, he prefers to identify himself as a student of theology, so I should really be a student of theology in residence, because he thinks there have actually been very few theologians in fact, and the church historically associates the word theologian with only a very few actual theologians in history, one of them being Gregory. And the idea is that, well, to be a theologian means you have to really come into contact with God. And Miroslav's like, oh, that's an awfully tall order for me. So I think I'm just going to be, a, I'm just going to call myself a student of theology and we'll leave it to the communion of saints to determine whether I've been a true theologian or not. Uh, that's some good humility. But Gregory has been called the theologian, uh, Gregory the theologian and he was particularly interested in this passage from John 16 because his major, the debate of his day did not regard the Son. It wasn't about Arianism. It was really about the Holy Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit was fully divine, like the Son and the Father. And so some trivia for those of you who are following along at home, what we call the Nicene Creed in the, in the liturgy is really the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. It's the result of two councils, not just the Council of Nicaea in 325, but the first Council of Constantinople in 381, because the Council of Nicaea ended the third article of the Creed, right? You got the first article, we believe in God the Father. The second article, we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. The third article... All that Nicaea said was, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, period. That's it. And then it had some other stuff down there about the things which they didn't like. Um, <laughs> but it just said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. So it took Constantinople I uh, in 381 to fill out the Holy Spirit part. And there were people around Gregory who were saying, you know, I don't know about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, sure, the Father and the Son, but maybe the Holy Spirit is just kind of divine. And he thought that was, that was worrisome because for Gregory... The, the Trinity is the house into which we've all got to move. And the concern is that you might turn the Holy Spirit into like the driveway. <laughs> and he doesn't want that, right? He wants for the God with whom we come into contact today, the God who is present to us now, which is God the Holy, God the Holy Spirit. He wants for that person of the Trinity to be really, really God. So when we come into contact with the Holy Spirit, when we move into the Holy Spirit, we're moving into the house, as it were. Uh, but for Gregory, this is a spiritual adventure, and it's not something to be intellectually mastered. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So one of the ways that Gregory and some of his um, colleagues thought about the difference between the Trinitarian persons is not what happens in history, but what happens in eternity. And the idea was that what happens in eternity is that you have an unbegotten something or other which you call the Father. That is, a something with no source, but which is the source of the other two persons. The other two, we know not what, because we don't really know what it means to call these persons persons. We, anyway, uh, that's, a longer, that's a longer story. Um, and the, the idea is that the Son is begotten, whatever begotten means, and that the Spirit precedes, whatever precedes means, or sometimes breathes or sometimes spirated. Um, and Gregory just wants to point up the fact that nobody really knows what these words mean and that it is a spiritual adventure, a prayerful adventure of discovery of coming into contact with the living God that's really the heart of the Trinity. And so he writes in his, um, one of his theological orations, um, what then is procession, meaning this like equivalent to being begotten by the, by the, uh, in regard to the Son? What does it mean for the Spirit to proceed? And he says, do you tell me what is the unbegottenness of the Father? And I will explain to you the physiology of the generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit, 
and then we shall both of us be frenzy-stricken for prying into the mystery of God. <laughs> Basically, he says, well, you want me to tell you what it means to, for the Spirit to proceed. Well, first, you tell me what it means for the Father to be unbegotten and for the Son to be begotten, and then we're going to be frenzy-stricken because we've just touched things that are too real for our minds possibly to comprehend. He goes on to say, and who are we to do these things who cannot even see what lies at our feet or number the sand of the sea or the drops of rain or the days of eternity, much less enter into the depths of God and supply an account of that nature which is so unspeakable and transcending all words. I mean, that's the house, right? The house of a spiritual mystery um, in, with which we have real contact, right? But which is beyond our comprehending. I was uh, recently in a conversation with um, Frank Roswell, the former presiding bishop of, of our church, uh, the Episcopal Church, that is, uh, and he was talking about Mark McIntosh, uh, who is, uh, was a mystical theologian, uh, his, um, a, a beloved of Frank, and Frank was telling me about, about Mark and about uh, the homily he preached at Mark's funeral. Mark died of ALS at the age of 61, which is shocking. And he was noting that a theologian, uh, strictly speaking, an ancient definition was one who prays. Mm -hmm. Theologian was one who prays. And that, that Mark's work was really, uh, as a mystical theologian, about the doctrine, about the house. We're, all, we're, all, we're coming back to your house <laughs> a lot here. Um, but as, you know, where theology and spirituality uh, intersect again. So this is about move, moving into the house. And so when theology and spirituality intersect, uh, and now to get back into Johannine language, we abide in the abode, right? So mm -hmm. we we uh, we abide, and in, in the abode of the of the divine is is within the center of our souls, and that um, and that the purpose and the, the battling of this theological division does the does it. You know, does it come from? Does the spirit come from the father only, or from the father and the son? Which which war, people were killed over this question and had to do with the question of deification. But but what that is to say that each of the parts of the trinitarian life are a fullness of God each in themselves. And so it's not like you have three pieces of a pie and you put the three pieces of pie and you, you get a whole. Each is each is a whole within itself. And so therefore. Uh, with the problem we have where, where the, um, the Holy Spirit is the sort of Rodney Dangerfield of the Trinitarian life, right? I, you know, that Rodney Dangerfield, for those who don't know, is one who gets no respect, that, uh, that, that as the Rodney Dangerfield of the Trinitarian life, um, perhaps what this is about in this conversation we're having today is to say, no, folks, the, the, the Spirit is fully as full as, the, as Jesus the Son and as mm -hmm. God as Father. We could maybe at another time get into words, the issues we have with words of Son and Father, which sound so gender-oriented, mm -hmm. though what you pointed out, the Father really points toward not gender, but the uncreatedness of the divine Godhead and the Son uh, is really Sophia in many ways is really the you know the son is the one who brings the wisdom who in uh, Hebraic literature and 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 also the literature of the Greek world is, is uh, wisdom is a woman uh, personified as a woman so but we get into this so-called person of the spirit uh, who is 
fully, fully divine, and, and then from theologian to spirituality to person, to you and me and to the people listening, we're talking about abiding with this spirit, which is the encounter with the living God. That's, this is the, we're talking about, you know, how do we encounter the living God mm -hmm. and, and what happens that the living God is an active power in our lives uh, and it, both individually and in community. Mm -hmm. And that as an active power in our lives, it impels and compels us toward the divine. It's like a wave it's like you can't, if you've ever surfed, I mean, getting, your, getting out when the waves are coming in takes a whole lot of work because you have, it's really hard to figure out what to do with your board. I'm a karate surfer, so it's hard for me to figure out what to do with my board, you know, like ducking under. I just get whacked <laughs> because the waves are impelling and compelling this direction. Mm -hmm. And so the wave theory of the living spirit of God is like the wave that impels us and compels us toward the divine, but not just the divine, but the revelation of Jesus mm. is what, what's going on in, in, in this gospel, that, it's, that the lens that we put on is, is a Jesus lens, that, but which is also a father lens because they're within each other, right? You know, and, and that's when you get into this, this, kind of, this kind of craziness. But it's all of this uh, highfalutin stuff up here in the balcony is really downloaded into our individual lives, and I will say into community lives. And so uh, just to bear witness to the, the community that we live in, the Christian community that we live in, which has such a powerful spirit in it. And I'm reminded of years ago when the church was in a difficult phase and we did the original Maranatha house churches, so the gathering of eight sessions with the majority of the people in the parish where we, we talked about Jesus for four sessions and talked about like what we we're going to do as a church for four sessions. And, and what happened was uh, something that for me would made me believe in the power of the Holy Spirit because though I was in my office typing out these little guides, mm -hmm. what happened was a spiritual thing in a, what I used to call the petite Pentecost the, because <laughs> what happened was the Spirit of God caught the wave and it took the, the church. And I mean, we got 200 members like in one year. I mean, just mm -hmm. things like, and that was a spiritual movement mm -hmm. where we caught the wave of the Spirit. The Spirit was already there. We just happened to you know, and then we wrote it, so to speak. Yeah. I like your oxymoron of the petite Pentecost. Totally. <laughs> Can there be a small Pentecost? But oh. I get it. I get that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, we 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 can mostly perceive with our brains, and we mostly do operate on that level. But to really move into all this, we we have to go into a deeper place and mm. silence, you know, that the, all the contemplative practices go there, that when you retreat into your inner room and your inner heart and, and start perceiving with the heart and letting, letting the Holy Spirit speak to you on that level, I mean, we don't need gendered terms and all those things just kind of take you right back up into your mind and your intellect. And mm. it's hard to get out of that unless you spend time really allowing yourself to be open, right? I mean, I think mm -hmm. von Balthasar talks about that, that doc, the practice of openness and the doc, the, um, he doesn't call it a doctrine, it's a principle of openness. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, so I think that, you know, we're all theologians. I, I don't want to argue with Miroslav Volf, <laughs> God forbid, or Gregory, but... Yeah. Um, we, we do theology just in perceiving yeah. where God is in our lives. I mean, 
to, to observe and experience and name and appreciate and share. I mean, that's theology. I think when you're, you're the funneling of God through you, you know, like the, the river and you're like guiding the, the passageway in your life of where God's flowing. And mm. um, so I, I think that I, I don't really want to let people think that you're not a theologian or you're not a theologian <laughs> or I'm not a theologian or, you know, anyone listening can't be a theologian. I mean, you can, there's only one Gregory of Nazianzus. And only one Justin Chris. Oh gosh, yeah, but, don't put me on that but level. There's always only one of each of us, you know. And, That's very true. And in John, um, one thing I just wanted to throw out there for thought is that in John, particularly, the spirit is given to the community. Mm. It's it's less emphasis on um, individuals, you know, where the, the the Greeks are always the plural. I will give you the Holy Spirit, and together they discern and perceive and experience and go out together, you know, and I really think that's sort of helpful too. It's not that individuals don't also get the Holy Spirit in them, but, um, but it's meant to be in flow and community, right? And our, I think that's what we, we perceive here at, at our own church is when it's really flowing, I mean, wow, it's such a beautiful thing. And there's so much love and we're so much more than the sum of our parts. And, um, hmm. I don't know. So just a few spin-off thoughts. No, totally. <laughs> I really like where we've um uh where this conversation about the Trinity has taken us because I, I think that the the temptation of Trinity Sunday is for a preacher to get up in the pulpit and just start talking about the consubstantiality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit or something like that. I'm never uh, tempted to preach that. Yeah, you're never tempted to do that. I'm tempted to do that. Um, I wouldn't know. Yeah. And it's not that that's not interesting, right? It's interesting. But the point of, so the, we've all been talking about how the Trinity was born of the church's experience of God in Christ. It was born of experience. And the whole point of the Trinity is to enter into that experience, to experience fit for yourself. And I would say I'm in complete agreement that the place to start, the place where everyone who's listening to this has already experienced the Trinity is in prayer. Uh, thank you for that. So everybody, thank you for uh, being with us uh, for this conversation around this uh, important piece of scripture around Trinity Sunday, around the first Sunday of Pentecost. Uh, loved your comment that we are theologians is also a book written in the Episcopal tradition. We're hoping that your theology of the Trinity uh, becomes so alive as you move more deeply into that house. We also love it when you like, subscribe, and do all that sort of stuff. Peace be with you, and God bless, and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you.